Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1709, one of the great European technological achievements of the 18th century was finally realized, the reverse engineering of a formula for porcelain that the Chinese had used for almost two millennia. That this recipe was recreated in Saxony, the heart of Middle Europe, meant that porcelain would have a special place, not merely in the technology, business, industry, and culture of the German states, but at the center of their political economy and in their relation to an ever-globalizing capitalist economy. With me to discuss this Fascinating and Entangled History is Suzanne L. Marchand. She is Boyd Professor of History at Louisiana State University, with a particular focus on European intellectual history and the history of the humanities in modern Europe. But her most recent book is Porcelain, a History from the Heart of Europe, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Sue Marchand, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Great to be here, Al. So, uh, first things first. Uh, when I picked up this book, I could not have given a clear explanation of what porcelain is. Um, it's, uh, and in fact, it was not a subject that particularly interested me. Uh, and I left the book um, knowing an, a lot more about many things which I did not even realize existed. And as we'll talk about at the end, I felt a sort of um, sadness that um, this whole little universe associated with porcelain, um, it might soon be on the way out uh, in exchange for paper cups and uh, straws and, I don't know, plastic clamshell, foam clamshell containers. Um, but first, what is porcelain, technically speaking? Well, Al, your, your description of the book replicates my experience. I learned a tremendous amount from this book. I, I'm not a collector. I was not a specialist in any way in material culture when I started this project. And it's been a great, great um, adventure for me. I've learned so much about, uh, about Central European culture that I never had expected, even though I've been studying it for 30, 35 years now. But to answer your question about porcelain, uh, I would say that it counts as the queen of the ceramics. Um, it is the most translucent. It is the most fine grade of ceramics. It's known especially for its very beautiful whiteness and its glassy quality. It also insulates against heat or, or cold. It doesn't, doesn't crack um, when you pour hot water into it, for example. Um, it doesn't stain. It has many superior technical qualities. And then it's also um, very, very delicate once molded, and it can be painted and shaped um, into any any um, number of different kinds of, of vessels or, um, or artworks. It is um, difficult to work with, as um, ceramicists will tell you. It's very, uh, very persnickety. It has to be fired at a very high temperature. Um, the glazing is uh, a special art in and of itself. So it's um, it's a very delicate and high grade form of ceramics, and it's um, it's made from 
um, silicates, which makes it sort of plastic plus a kind of flowery substance, which can be feldspar or in China, something called petunsa stone. Uh, it can be mixed with alabaster or quartz. There are actually many different recipes for, uh, for hard paste porcelain, though, um, though only a few of them actually work and can be fired. And that was one of the great tricks um, of the invention. Now, you spend uh, a lot of time educating the reader about sort of the state of play in pottery prior to 1709 in Europe. And I think that's really important because otherwise we don't understand um, what a revolution this is. Um, and as we'll see, this revolution, just in terms of science and technology, has lots of far-reaching implications since we're dealing with, oh, really, this is kind of the, the beginning of what we can recognize as chemistry. But what's European pottery like before before the this recreation of porcelain in Saxony? It's very, very. This, one of the stories that I tell through the book is about the diversity of different kinds of ceramics and their different uses. So by no means was porcelain ever the most produced or the most popular form of ceramics earthenware, and then something called faience, which is a fine grade of earthenware, was much more popular because it's much cheaper, um, easier to make, uh, and much more utilitarian. So uh, even uh, before porcelain is invented, uh, or reinvented rather, in, in Europe, hard paste porcelain, there are various other fine grades of ceramics. There's majolica, there's uh, faience, there's something called soft paste porcelain, which is fired at a lower temperature and has different uh, components in it. Um, there are forms of stoneware, which are very popular in, um, in Northern Germany, for example. So never is porcelain the only ceramics in play, uh, but it comes in as the finest grade and the most desirable, especially for elite consumers. So uh, by the late uh, 16th century, if not before, um, porcelain has been popular in the Islamic world and it's leaking its way into Europe. Um, you have, I mean, there's so many little tidbits in this. Uh, for example, the fact that because of raiding Spanish ships, which were by that time uh, trading from Manila, uh, Elizabeth I had twice as much porcelain uh, as the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, who was a considerably, I would, richer than her. Uh, yet, uh, when the Dutch East India Company starts trading, um, it real the market uh, explodes. I mean, it's really astounding. You say that in the 1630s, the Dutch are importing 200,000 pieces a year. It, it's extraordinary. And a lot of that is actually not the finest grade or the top quality porcelain lump is actually ballast. Um, huh. It's coming uh, through the shipping trade, which is carrying more precious commodities like pepper um, or other spices. Uh, but porcelain makes an excellent ballast. It's very heavy. It doesn't get destroyed if it gets wet. Um, and so many of those pieces of porcelain came as sort of an extra bonus to the Dutch shippers because they could then auction them off when they arrived and make a, make a, uh, a fortune off of their ballast, not to mention their other commodity. 
So is there sufficient, uh, it might be balanced, but is, is there sufficient economic interest in this, in this in porcelain uh, to uh, urge people to find out how to recreate it? Definitely. There um, are many European princes who began to compete for the sort of largest collection and the most extravagant pieces of East Asian porcelain. They begin commissioning works from the Chinese um, sets with their own, let's say, crest uh, or um, coat of arms on them or in certain patterns. And uh, certain princes in Europe begin to spend quite a lot of money on those imports. So the, uh, the watchful amongst the economic ministers look at this and they say, aha, if only we could cut out the Dutch and cut out the Chinese producers and produce our own, we too could have um, a huge luxury industry um, and get a boost to our economy in this way. So there is a kind of race by the end of the 17th, early 18th century to try to find the recipe that will replicate what the Chinese have made. And um, it's, it's a very fascinating series of experiments people do using eggshells and broken glass and all kinds of other things to try to replicate the recipe. So enter um, a cast of characters and a story, which I think, I thought as I read it, you must have really enjoyed writing it about it. Um, Frederick, uh, Frederick, the, uh, sorry, it's, who's the, the elector of Saxony? Uh, is it Frederick? Augustus. Not Frederick? Augustus, the strong. Augustus. The five foot nine and a half, the Saxon Hercules, who supposedly can bend horseshoes, toss a fox all by himself. We'll get to fox tossing in a bit. Um, and fathers, 450 uh, illegitimate children, only one legitimate one, I think, which is some kind of record. As one of my professors said, one of them was bound to make good. Um, <laughs> the um, So we've got this character, and in enter a bunch of people, and it's out of a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. Could you set, set this up for us, and why Saxony, and how this comes about, and this fascinating connection to alchemy and magic? Absolutely. Um, first of all, why Saxony? Um, Saxony was an extremely rich state at the time. It was a place where there were many skilled tech, uh, um, artisans of various kinds, including glassmakers, many of them bohemian. You know, the bohemian glass industry is quite famous in its of, of its own right. Um, many metal workers of various kinds. There was a big luxury market there, but especially a market at court because Augustus himself was a huge porcelain fanatic and was uh, spending many, many um, uh, at the time florins a year on uh, porcelain. However, the, the way the invention worked was almost an accident. Uh, it starts with a big brag going wrong <laughs> when a, an apothecary's assistant uh, working in Prussia boasts to anyone who will listen to him that he can actually make gold, that he is an alchemist and knows the secret to the magic of turning base metals into gold. Well, this gets him locked up by the, uh, by the king of Prussia, not so much because he uh, is um, accused of fraud, but because the king wants him to replicate the recipe so he can uh, benefit from this making of gold. And uh, 
Butcher, as the name of the young apothecary's assistant, escapes only to be re-imprisoned as he crosses the border by Augustus the Strong, who also wants this alchemist in his own pay, wants him to make gold, rather like the, the princess in uh, Rumpelstiltskin. And so uh, Butcher is imprisoned for a number of years, uh, trying to make gold, given all sorts of equipment and capital and technical assistance, and he still can't do it. Uh, he fails over and again. And finally, I think uh, probably at the suggestion of another court scientist who has come to help him, he moves in the direction of trying to do something else that requires chemistry and high heat, and that is making hard paste porcelain. And at that point, experiments on porcelain begin. It takes some time to get those right. And without the capital provided by Augustus the Strong, this could never have happened. So that's another um, must have been Saxony bit. Finally, um, first, the, um, the red clay porcelain succeeds. And then Butcher manages to fire some white porcelain um, by 1708. And that's the moment at which um, Augustus is really pleased and sees the possibility for founding a real industry and not only supplying his own needs, but supplying those of courtiers throughout Europe. So this feeds into what you intricate, uh, intricate description uh, in your book of the mercantilist system of Central Europe, the German states. Could you, could you explain that? Because that is another lost economic world. Um, Obviously, when Augustus sees this, it's not just as a porcelain fanatic. I mean, it's a, a real porcelain fanatic, but as someone who sees his chance and wants to take it. Right. Um, so in uh, in 17th century France, um, the first real sort of economic philosophy is launched by um, by Jean Colbert, the minister of um of finance essentially for Louis the 13th and the 14th. And one of the things that he believes is that states can do well by producing their own commodities and not spending money on uh, importing luxury goods in particular. Um, he's also um, deeply interested in developing local industries to create, let's say, good jobs. We know about that um, philosophy these days of good jobs here at home. And uh, he, uh, he develops um, a policy that also often involves uh, the use of colonies for raw materials so that the home country can produce the higher value finished goods and then export those. So it's a, it's a philosophy in which the state invests in certain things or even owns certain industries so that it can encourage things at home put tariffs on imports, um, and make money on exports. And that's exactly the philosophy that many of these Saxon princes, including Augustus, adopt. And they adopt it against one another. You have to remember that um, in discussing the early 18th century in Saxony, Saxony is part of the Holy Roman Empire of 330-some small states, all of them competing with each other both economically, but also in terms of prestige. So this is one of the ways in which the German states 
really become active producers of porcelain in many different of these principalities because they're seeking both economic advantage through this mercantile uh, endeavor and they're seeking prestige for themselves as, um, as states that are notorious for their refinement and their taste and their good jobs. Hmm. You mentioned that Augustus sees the opportunity to, um, to supply court culture, which indicates that um, what the market is like for porcelain in the, 18th, in the 18th century, early 18th century. This is not about um, plates for dining. Um, it's something else entirely, and which another thing I did not know. Um, could you explain what the market is for porcelain in the in the, in the early eighteenth century, uh, and how this is? Um, it's so related to the cultural ecosystem of these three hundred and fifty German states. Sure. Um, so, in let's say seventeen hundred. Um, the drinking of tea and coffee is coming in very fast in the Netherlands, in uh, in German, uh, not in Germany, in uh, in France, and especially in England. It comes more slowly to Central Europe, but there's some beginnings of the desire to have vessels that will hold the new hot uh, liquids: tea, coffee, uh, chocolate. But primarily what um, porcelain is being used for in Central Europe is for decoration, for putting on the walls as a kind of uh, display of wealth and as a kind of panorama of materials or even as in the, the beautiful porcelain room in Charlottenburg in, um, in Berlin, Schloss Charlottenburg, uh, as a kind of porcelain cabinet or porcelain room devoted entirely to pieces of porcelain uh, placed on the walls in, in decorative patterns. And that's what, at first, German princes and courtiers are doing, for the most part, with their porcelain. They might use a little bit of it for coffee services or perhaps for dessert, but mostly um, the demand is for display and for a kind of refined uh, tasteful decoration of the the courtly interior. So it's so, um, it's not a it's not a question of um, you know the necessity is the mother of invention in this respect. That is, you have hot liquids, you must have things to put um, them in. Um, really, this is an invention pushed by the desire for luxury and display. That's my view. In any case, it's um, I, I hadn't really, porcelain's a new artistic medium at the time. Well, it's they, of course they have East Asian porcelain, which yes. has been used in porcelain cabinets, but um, but it is now something that can attract attention. Um, it can be uh, a way of also showing um, sort of your ability to afford useless things. Mm. So like one a, of the things, like a monkey orchestra, ahead. like the monkey orchestra, like which <laughs> right, exactly. Um, like those figurines, which are um, really um, invented to go on the dining tables as decoration, um, like the whole menagerie of porcelain animals that that Augustus commissions for uh, what he hopes will be a great palace of porcelain. It never is completed, but many of those animals are made nearly life size in porcelain, yeah. just a technical feat. 
It is just sorry, but Johan Kendler, who struggles with the technical challenges of making near life-size goats and slender-necked herons, which I had just absolutely no idea that such a thing was being done. I mean, this is extraordinary that people are trying to make these things. It took a lot of trial and error, for sure. Um, And it took an an immense amount of technical sophistication to make those animals and to produce them without cracks, for example, or without them slumping in the kilns. Um, It's really quite an extraordinary feat that that, um, people were able to do such things. And mind you, this was also a period in which it's very hard to control or know exactly um, the temperature of your your kiln. So um, to actually fire such a thing and have it succeed is, is really an extraordinary feat. So Augustus and, and it, what, what sees that there's a market, at least 350 little courts, large and small courts uh, throughout Germany and, and beyond Germany. Um, and so from the very beginning, there's this attempt, as you say, at, at one point to square the circle of, um, of art, of, of artistic and technical excellence of the kind that is required to make those, those animals or the eight meter tall mirror, which uh, they made for Louis XV, um, make these extraordinary objects out of porcelain. At the same time, you're actually trying to sell the stuff. This is not just a, a Michelangelo or Raphael doing it on commission for a patron. This is actually trying to get out into a market, however rarefied. And trying to square that circle is exceedingly difficult uh, throughout the entire history of porcelain. Indeed, it's one of the things that I learned in the course of working on this project um, to see reflections of in in our own day. So, for example, when uh, one of our luxury brands, let's say, you know, Gucci or Yves Saint Laurent produces runway goods, the, the sort of commissioned special goods. They also have to keep their uh, their bottom line safe by producing a lot of the sort of uh, knockoff or lower um, lower level brands that are also more utilitarian. Let's say uh, the blue suits, uh, not just the spectacular um, clothes on the runway. And similarly, these manufacturers in the 18th century already realized that they could only manage to continue to create those um, eight-foot-tall mirrors and uh, porcelain goats if they also sold everyday wares, cups and saucers and plates and pipes. And that um, was a kind of market strategy that that remarkably early these porcelain manufacturers figured out uh, how to, to manage. Of course, not all of them did. And one of the stories that I tell in the book uh, over and over again is a story of business failure as so many of these, uh, these porcelain manufacturers went out of business, uh, were bailed out by their princes, had to have loans um, to tide them over. Uh, It's a real lesson in just how much business failure there is alongside those few successes that we, we hear about. Usually business failures leave little historical trace. And so we, we overlook them. But um, this was an industry in which a lot of people tried and failed to find, as it were, the right recipe. Well, speaking of which, um, the Saxon porcelain works, Meissen, which is literally a castle, 
I guess to keep everyone uh, locked up, uh, all the better. But you've got this tremendous problem. You wish to have this golden uh, goose that lays golden eggs, and you want to confine it in your kingdom. It's like another. It is like another fairy tale, um, and you don't want uh, anyone else to figure out where this porcelain, how it's made. Yet, how do you keep the skilled workmen who have to learn how to do this trade? How do you keep them locked up? How do you keep them happy? And eventually. The secret will out, and it does, and it spreads hither and yon. Could you describe that sort of process? Because that's this whole industrial espionage thing and the spread of porcelain to to country after country and factory after factory is utterly fascinating. It's, um, it's a great story, one that makes me laugh every time I think about it, <laughs> um, as it's just human nature replicated again and again. So you start with craftsmen who are uh, either disappointed in their pay or disappointed in their status. What happens to them? They run away from the lockup in the castle and they, they sell their secret elsewhere. There are also plenty of people who immediately become charlatans wandering around telling princes that they know how to make porcelain when in fact they don't know how to make porcelain. So they survive a couple of years while they... Uh, they try this and that and, and hope that they'll succeed, and some do, and most don't. There are people who get drunk and divulge the secret while they're in their cups. Um, there are family members who are bribed or seduced into giving up the secret. It's, um, it's just a, a kind of uh, series of stories that remind you of just how fallible uh, human nature and secret keeping is. Um, and eventually there are publications that begin to also lay out more or less the secret. But one thing, Al, that's kind of interesting to me about this whole secret business is that even um, many of those who technically know how to make porcelain, at least in one place, fail elsewhere because they yeah. don't have the kiln um, just right. Perhaps they know about the chemical mixture, but they were never um, watching very carefully how to build the kiln. Or the water is different and the sand quality is different somewhere else. Uh, or there's um, no access to the right kind of clay. So there, there are many um, of these problems that don't have to do entirely with knowing or not knowing the secret but just with having the, the technical um, flexibility of mind and the experimental conditions under which you can um, reproduce or recreate in some way a recipe that worked elsewhere. Yeah, it's such an interesting moment in uh, the history of science and technology because these people are, I mean, here we've begun with, with the people, these are the arcanum, uh, they have secrets, they have a secret to bring, um, and yet uh, their experimental methods aren't always up to snuff and they don't realize the difference between, the, they, they haven't, some of them have no way of, of analyzing the water or the nature of the kale and the deposits that are, are, are in the area and so on. Um, I, I, I suspect uh, that uh, a lot of their efforts to figure those things out are contributing to the standardization of chemical techniques throughout Central Europe. Yes, to a certain extent, yes. And actually, one of the things I really um, didn't have any notion about when I started into this project 
was how important uh, chemistry becomes to certain forms of mass production. In Central Europe, there is not very much capital. Uh, labor is a lot cheaper than machines, which mostly have to be imported from the British Isles or are very expensive to build. And so um, there's a lot of dependence on labor and on animal power. Um, that goes right through the 19th century. It's late that, uh, that many steam-driven appliances are added to this, this, um, this industry. And what does come in to help cheapen the production once competition really gets going is chemistry um, to make the paste cheaper to make, to uh, make the gilding um, cheaper to apply to uh, also invent new colors of glaze that will give you an edge over your competitors. So um, first artisanal and then increasingly more academic forms of chemistry really transform this industry in ways that go beyond the machines, for sure. Um, you uh, write that um, by focusing on porcelain, we can obtain a better view of other aspects of Central Europe's economic modernization that are often left out. Uh, what are those aspects? Well, um, many. Um, one of the things that, that you notice if you start reading the literature on the Industrial Revolution is just how much of it is about Great Britain. Um, and then secondarily, the United States or perhaps France, maybe Belgium. Um, the German states, Central Europe in general, gets a very short shrift in those histories. And uh, they. this is partly because their trajectories don't match exactly the, the others for some of the reasons I just gave about labor and machines, but also for a number of other reasons like political and economic fragmentation and the persistence of craft traditions and luxury industries that, um, that fit in and around the larger industrial enterprises like textile manufacturing or um, steel making um, or cotton uh, production. All of those things are crucial. Of course, they're central to industrial development, but in Central Europe, one could make the case, I think, that some of these other industries are equally important and need to be studied in a different way than we have studied the, the heavy industrial goods. So we could turn to the study of, let's say, book production or saddles or silk hats or uh, glassware, um, uh, all sorts of other smaller industries that become more and more um productive and change over the course of the 19th century, but are not the same thing and do not concentrate either labor or capital in the same way as textiles or coal, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose the other, um, particularly with regards to um, focusing the Industrial Revolution on Britain and America, we have a completely different way of financing uh, these firms and uh, organizing these firms. Um, I don't, we'll get to Wedgwood in just a second. So we'll put a, a, a pin in that, um, to talk about that difference. But, um, one thing I'm interested to see is, is the, 
emphasis you give to certain periods which you believe are uh, unjustly neglected because they don't fit into the usual, um, let's just say a sort of a political, political culture narrative uh, that many of many uh, historians of Central Europe. Uh, one of these periods is after the Seven Years' War, which you argue was uh, immensely important to uh, uh, the economy and the society and the culture of Central Europe. How, how is that reflected in the history of porcelain? Well, this is a period that's really crucial to the history of the industry. It's a period in which competition increases greatly and in which there's a kind of financial squeeze um, as princes begin to pull back from their mercantile industries and various of the manufacturers begin to fail. Um, and there's a, just a greater sort of global um, exchange of capital by that point thanks to Atlantic shipping, and thanks to the Dutch, and thanks to many other different um, factors. But we rarely, I think, um, focus on that period because we're in a rush to get to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And so um, this period of sort of late absolutism and uh, mercantile uh, development, but also challenges to that system, uh, there's a um, also, something going on, particularly in Central Europe, known as cameralism, which is the really the application of various kinds of efficiency and sciences of uh, accounting to the process of both governance and um, and manufacturing. New mapping techniques, for example, and new efficiencies imposed by ministers and bureaucrats who now have training and are keeping statistics. All of those things change the nature of the market, and they begin to really um, create um, something like, um, I wouldn't say entirely, but something like an international market in which now the German states begin to participate in various of their sectors, but, um, but especially, I think, in those smaller luxury goods and books um, as well. And that's, that's a really interesting moment to contemplate and to um, to put on our radar screens. And uh, I think it, it's worth us um, thinking about how we've chopped up things in the past and how we might uh, we might start new trajectories in the future. Now, is there, um, you talk about the sort of the growing coffee market and sort of, um, is, is there a, a growing, um, well, basically a, a bourgeois market for porcelain by this time? Or is it still, by 1760s, 1770s, is it still confined to primarily to court culture? It is growing. It's not yet very large, but it is growing precisely for the reasons that you, um, that you underline. By this point, more and more Germans are drinking coffee <laughs> and, uh, and tea, but especially coffee. And that becomes um, a reason now for middle-class people to buy a more utilitarian good that is um, porcelain in its uh, cheaper forms. Most of them would, would buy faience, by the way, or earthenware and not porcelain. But there is, um, there is some new interest in having those kinds of goods. It's also the case that porcelain is starting to be made um, available at cheaper prices, at least the lower grades. So it becomes a bit more affordable as also the society gets a bit richer. If we talk about the German states, you know, before 1720 um, or even before 1740, um, 
consumers there are really quite poor and um, most of them cannot afford much in the way of luxury goods. Um, only by the end of the 18th century do we begin to see a few more people able to afford things like porcelain, including people who are, let's say, state officials or commercial businessmen or, um, or craftsmen. Uh, so you do get a bit of an expansion, but it's not, it's not a vast market as of yet. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting juxtapositions, at least for me, as I was thinking about it, is the, the uh, salesman and marketing abilities of Frederick the Great versus Josiah Wedgwood. Um, Frederick the Great not, uh, has uneven t- uh, an uneven sense of the consumer market, let's put it that way. Um, his, uh, he hates uh, coffee and sternly advocates beer soup, which I had to look up. Beer soup. Um, sounds delicious. Not sure I want it for breakfast. Um, but um, on the other hand, uh, we have this, for certainly for German porcelain, for continental porcelain, the tiger in the, in the road is Hosea Wedgwood. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, we, we're supposed to be talking about Germany here, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about this fascinating guy, but I have to talk about him a little bit. So who is he and what does he do to transform the porcelain marketplace? So Josiah Wedgwood is a British potter. He um, grew up in a family of potters and takes over the business, but he is a very enterprising young person um, who also has some very good connections to the um, to the world of tastemaking and, as it happens, also to the world of early industry. And so he um, he really puts a great deal of effort into a number of aspects of the business that had not been previously emphasized, one of which is marketing, um, which he manages to do first by getting the queen to, um, to uh, own some of his, his uh, porcelain. Uh, and then he's interested in what the, the um, tastemakers of the day might like in terms of style. Um, he's one of the first to really take advantage of neoclassical styles. Um, and he manages to um, adopt himself to what we might call the fashion cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, he is someone who does believe there are tasteful and not tasteful things, but he's willing to make things that he doesn't particularly want to make if they'll sell. Um, and that's one of these crucial moments in which um, you see the industry begin to revolve around what sells and what consumers want as opposed to what the artisans want to make. Or, or, or even worse, what the, what the prince wants them to make and what the prince wants his people to buy. Exactly, right. yeah. exactly. So it's a move of taste from the, 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 uh, the high uh, uh, makers of um, luxury goods and their, their patrons to a market-driven idea of what uh, taste looks like. So one of the stories that's told about Wedgwood, I think very importantly, is that his wife, Sally, sat with him in his, uh, his porcelain um, studio and um, advised him on what kinds of tastes uh, women might prefer. And she uh, helped him also keep track of his many, many, many experiments. Mm-hmm. And that uh, was another piece of, of uh, Wedgwood's um, 
genius that surely cannot be discounted is that he worked very hard on uh, chemical inventions in order to perfect either the, um, the strength of his vessels or their design. And by the combination of the marketing and the, the chemical experimentation, he managed to build his business into a great competitor. Now, yeah. I, I just misspoke, Alan, I want to, um, yeah. to correct that before um, listeners um, get <laughs> angry with me. And that is to say that, that Wedgwood did not actually make porcelain in the way that I uh-huh. defined it at the beginning. He made a fine grade of earthenware, which was um, cheaper to make than porcelain, didn't have the same um, uh, ingredients, however, as European porcelain and was not fired at that high temperature. Uh, it competed very, very um, heavily with the porcelain, but um, but Josiah Wedgwood was not making hard paste porcelain. So uh, he combines in, in one person and one in one one uh, company uh, an amazing set of talents. The the scientific, which is often emphasized, um, as you point out, he combines that, however, with this marketing genius and um, an ability, a an amazing ability and sensitivity to read the market and see where it's going and somehow be ahead of it and be avant-garde. I mean, he's an avant-garde neoclassicist at the time, even though he's kind of following, he's, he's seeing where the market is going and he gets there first. Um, it's, it's an amazing set of talents he has. I mean, and, and this adaptability, despite being a very strict Methodist and a, a man who believes in things, as you say, not just uh, aesthetics, that there is a there is something, there are beautiful things and ugly things. He believes that very strongly. He's also a strict Methodist and an abolitionist, uh, famously in the, in, the, in the American case, um, uh, creates one of the greatest uh, abolitionist pieces of propaganda. Um, the plate of, a, of a, a slave in chains saying, am I not a man and a brother? Um, so this is all bound up in one man and it creates a hell of a problem for German porcelain manufacturers. Uh, so how do they respond to him? Well, um, one of the things that Wedgwood was also good at, and by the way, this is by no means my own research. Neil McKendrick worked uh, wonderfully on um, on Wedgwood many years ago um, and used the, the aspiration that Wedgwood had to become, as he called it, vase maker to the universe <laughs> as part of his description of this extraordinary character. In any event, uh, Wedgwood really did try to break into the European market in, um, in ways that were very um, disturbing to the German princes. Um, most notoriously, um, he sent porcelain to all sorts of people as a sort of loss leader to show off how great his stuff was and as uh, an equal to others. But he also sold at a cheaper price. And um, that was a great um, source of difficulty to to Meisen and to the Berlin manufacturers, the the KPM, uh, Royal Porcelain Manufacturer of Prussia, because their processing methods, their artisans were very uh, well paid on the whole, at least at the upper end, and uh, their uh, wastage was great. They were not as flexible as Wedgwood and didn't change their fashions quickly enough. And so they began to really suffer the consequences of the the competition with Wedgwood. And even tariffs couldn't keep out um, Wedgwood uh, products. 
that meant that they really had to adjust. And many of them just took to imitating Wedgwood's designs uh, and even imitating some of his marketing strategies too, although that was much less imitated than the designs. You say so that uh, capitalism did not conquer Central Europe without a fight. Indeed, in some cases, it did not conquer at all. Do you mean, is part of that fight um, the tariffs um, of the mercantile system, or are we speaking of something else? The, the tariffs, um, the state-supported industry part, as well as what was um, part of behind of what was behind that statement, uh, many of those businesses, those porcelain businesses, continued to be owned by the separate states and funded by them right into the 19th century, and a few of them right into the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, I was, I, I had no idea that Meissen is still owned by the Saxon state. That was just, that's a, a, amazing to find that out by the end of the book. It is the, the one, the last one that has been continuously state owned. And as I mentioned in the last part of the book, it's also in terrible financial trouble again, as it has been periodically in its history. And um, so one will see, you know, if the, if the state continues to fund it, it's a, it's a question. It's not a foregone conclusion. So as Adam Smith would have uh, pointed out at the time, um, these firms have a really hard time uh, responding to market signals. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, um, so let's go to the next um, sort of, to my mind, really interesting. We should, uh, I'm, we're skip, going to be skipping over um, really important sections of history here. But I wanted to get to the other part that really fascinated me, which is the 1820s and 1830s, which you say, uh, sort of as in the uh, wake of the Seven Years' War, uh, these are really unjustly neglected by German and European historians who are eager to get to 1848. Hurry up, hurry up, let's get to 1848. So uh, let's go through some of the uh, political, economic, bureaucratic, and cultural changes of that period and how they're reflected in porcelain. So one of, I think, my favorite sections of the book is called uh, Porcelain in the Gimlet Eye of the Finance Ministries. <laughs> and it's about the ways in which after the Napoleonic Wars, the states have to tighten their belts and crack down on these luxury industries, which are losing money after the end of aristocratic uh, consumption has really begun. And um, that belt tightening produces a lot of changes. It produces changes in how labor is compensated. It produces changes in uh, the way the, the manufacturers are run, increasingly by chemists rather than by artisans. Um, it produces new uh, forms of batch production, not really full-on mass production, but um, organization of the, the labor and the materials in ways that uh, that are supposed to be more efficient. It introduces the use of coal rather than wood in the firing of at least many of the manufacturers. Um, and it also is a moment at which the manufacturers do realize that they are going to have to take consumer choice into their, um, into their purview. And it's tough. A lot of these manufacturers are used to producing for aristocrats who um, who commission works. They're used to producing um, artwork that they respect as being kind of cutting edge in the art world. And now they're being forced to produce 
things that they find ugly or old fashioned. And it's at this point that in fact, uh, a kind of, of um, saving of the Meisen manufacturing in particular begins by way of reproducing old 18th century models. Hmm. Rather than going forward in time, that is, um, they are now going to have to produce more and more Rococo shepherdesses, um, which does not make the artisans happy, um, but it saves the bottom line. And this will be a long-term um, uh, um, issue at Meisen, where um, where the artists usually want to move forward and get with their times, but the consumers say, no, no, what you did best were those 18th century monkey orchestras and shepherdesses. And this is still true. Today it was true during the period of the German Democratic Republic. So we have this ironic um, issue at that point of uh, a communist enterprise producing luxury goods that, that were, uh, that are modeled on absolutist era, um, taste. Uh, but it is the bottom line that finally at this point begins to really count and that transforms this industry and so many others. That's uh, one reason I think that, that we, we need to rethink this period. It's, um, it's a period in which we, um, we have again, focused uh, too much just on textiles or on um, the so-called you know restoration um, of the monarchies. In fact, a lot of other things are happening, and it's a much more dynamic world than we've given credit for. Well, speaking of that section, the porcelain and the giblet eye of the finance ministry, you provide on page one seventy four a very helpful table explaining the ministerial minders of KPM, which is the Prussian porcelain manufacturer, which Frederick the Great had set up, or was it his dad? One of them. Oh, uh, Frederick, yeah, yeah, the Great. And uh, there are a lot of them. It is, in fact, it's 1787, 1810, 1815, 1817, 1825, 1837, Um, These state-owned manufacturers are now really uh, problem children. Somebody's got to mind them and make sure they're efficient, but uh, none of the bureaucratic um, departments are really very pleased about having to do that. It's it's difficult, and the manufacturers keep saying to them, we can't operate like an efficient textile business because we are producers of fine art. We produce luxury goods. You can't expect us just to, uh, to meet the bottom line. And the ministries keep saying, why don't you act more like a business? It's actually a, you know, a moment in the book that reminds me of the current debate uh, in universities, which mm-hmm. our administrations say, why don't you run more like a business? And we say, because we're not a normal business. And, um, no one is ever going to win that battle, I fear, but it's um, it's just a constant uh, kind of um, um, conflict yeah. between a market-driven world and one in which um, the production is not simply and only um, for uh, for the market. Uh, 
Well, we can all lose that battle, however. But that's that's another issue. <laughs> um, but the the extraordinary thing is that here, textile manufacturers are rising and falling all around them. But yet, porcelain, because of its genesis, um, apparently because of its the creation myth, as you, as it were, um, is too precious to be allowed. No one's saying, "Hey, KPM, you're going to have to go private." Somehow, it's the expression of the genius of the state, and it must be preserved. Mostly, although there are big fights uh -huh. through the 19th century in which um, members of parliament begin to say exactly this, that we don't need this, it ought to be private, uh, it costs too much money. And in fact, in, uh, in Austria, those liberal voices in the classical liberal sense actually win and the manufacturer is closed because it's losing too much money. But you're quite right in Saxony and in Prussia, um, the the um, the manufacturers convince the political elite that this is a, a state cultural institution. This is also true in uh, in Munich and um, um, Bavaria. That um, that these must be preserved because it's part of our cultural heritage, and that begins a new sort of chapter in the way in which porcelain gets wrapped into a kind of provincial pride, if not national pride, such that um, that the, the Nymphenberg manufactory cannot be allowed to close because um, it is part of the, the identity, in a way, of uh, Bavarians. And same thing for uh, Meisen and the Saxons. Um, those manufactories then also begin to produce a whole lot of of goods that um, reflect that that kind of loyalty, uh, scenic plates or of cups that have the the king's um, face on them, and those sorts of things, uh, commemorative goods, um, and it becomes really you know um, inextricable with that provincial uh, kind of identity, which is is something quite. Um, quite specific, I think, to Central Europe, where people do feel very strongly about their provincial loyalty, um, perhaps even more strongly than their national loyalty, at least for a while. And, and this is, as you're pointing out, also in chapter five, this is the, this is part of the fact that towns and cities are small, uh, even after the, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, we focus on sort of the, uh, on liberal nationalists, uh, thinking about a new Germany, um, but these people want to know about their place. They want to have pictures of their place. They want to have pottery or porcelain from their place. It reflects their values. And also, it's um, it's just part of their pride in that particular place that it can produce high quality porcelain and uh, and beautiful objects that can be so sold throughout the world, um, and that uh, sort of advertises their their taste and refinement um could you briefly speak about the biedermeyer moment um this is there a, is there immediately after the conclusion of the 1815 uh, the conclusion of the Pontiac wars is there really a, a flood of of bourgeois consumers who are flooding uh flooding into the shops to buy up uh, porcelain um what's what, what's biedermeyer look like in porcelain it takes a while um, people are quite poor in 1815. There's starvation in 1816, 17. Um, 
but by the 1830s, there are some people who can afford small luxury goods. And also, mind you, the prices are falling for some of these goods. So that also makes them relatively more affordable. But what people are buying are, are relatively modest things. A few teacups, a teapot, uh, porcelain pipes become all the rage. Something called a lithophane, which is um, a kind of display you put in front of a lamp. Um, those are, are um, a few little goods that people put into their, their salons uh, to decorate with. It's, uh, it's a minor um, sort of consumption compared to aristocratic buying, and it's minor compared to, let's say, the 1870s, 80s, 90s, when you start to get really crowded uh, bourgeois rooms full of uh, tchotchkes and hmm. of all sorts. But it begins in that period, and I think we have not given enough attention to the, the way in which those consumers begin to exert some of their own taste and their own humor. I found a lot of humorous porcelain. <laughs> um, or they begin to want to give a little more comfort and, uh, and luxury to their households in very small ways, um, but it's enough to begin to really create more demand and an expansion of the private uh, porcelain manufactories at that point really begins to take off. <laughs> and that's part of the story of the later 19th century is um, the battle that then is waged between the private makers and the uh, state makers which is won hands down by the private makers. Could you describe that? Because the, the, great, the great porcelain wars of Wilhelmine, Germany, um, and, and, and what they result in. The, the story is very complicated. There are lots of little manufacturers and bigger ones that develop. But, um, but by the, the later 19th century, while Meisen and KPM are producing uh, mostly uh, high-end um, and artistic porcelains. These other manufacturers come in to really take advantage of that bourgeois um, market and even the lower class market for very plain porcelains. And they also begin producing all kinds of other household goods like floor tiles, um, doorknobs. Um, they produce insulators for the um, for the telegraph. Um, um, industry and for uh, the railroad industry, and they begin to produce um, porcelain teeth. All sorts of different uses of porcelain come in, and the private makers expand their businesses and become more and more oriented to mass production, and they can do it more cheaply because of their larger market, and they um, add more and more workers uh, and more and more machines creating real mass production then at that point. And that makes those older makers um, still the producers of the most famous porcelains, but they increasingly have a smaller and smaller market share when you look at the, the statistics. So it's certainly by the time of the First World War, Meisen, KPM, Infenberg are producing a very small proportion of porcelain sold overall. I want to get back to something as we close up the conversation to something we just touched on briefly. I meant to ask you at the beginning, which is 
how in the heck did you come to this topic? Uh, I, as I look at your LSU uh, faculty page, I can see that you're working on, you know, interpretations of Herodotus and 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 stuff on the uh, the history of the humanities and in, in, in modern Germany. And this doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with porcelain. So, um, how did you come to this topic? And uh, I, and how long did this take to assimilate this immense amount of um, reading and and stuff that you've put into this book, which is a, a 500 page book if you count the notes, which yeah, we should. I blame museums. Uh, <laughs> I spend a lot of time in provincial museums. And uh, I think perhaps the inspiration for this one came in visiting the silver cabinet of the Habsburg uh, monarchy in Vienna, where I just thought, wow, there is so much of this stuff um, and it's so diverse. How in the world uh, did all of this get made and how was it used? Who uh, commissioned it all? And I began to look into the, um, the industry in the hopes that I could also do a little bit of testing about popular taste that might answer some of the questions I had in my work on the history of classical antiquity and its, its, um, its uh, reception and oriental mm -hmm. uh, scholarship and its, um, its reception. I couldn't entirely do that, although I made a few stabs at it. But then I got seduced by the business history of the manufacturers and by what it could tell me more generally about the whole um, of Central European economic history, which can be dreadfully dull to read um, some uh, of those accounts. Um, I thought this might be a more lively way of putting um, something really important back into conversation, and that's economic history, which I think has been... Um, rather neglected, uh, particularly perhaps for Central European history, um, but uh, but definitely deserves to have more light shown on it. I, I'll also say that this project um, vindicates 50 years of shopping. So <laughs> <laughs> be proud that I have, um, have finally put my, um, you know, some of my avocations together with my, um, with my, scholarly life. Yeah, I was I was struck by you said that that economic that um, historians of Germany have neglected uh, the study of consumption uh, rather than critique of consumption. They haven't neglected that, but they've neglected the study of consumption itself, uh, and they've also neglected economic history. Could you could you explain that? I mean, it seems to, I I'm, I was surprised to, to to read that. Well, I shouldn't shouldn't say this as a global statement because of course there are many important economic histories of Germany, but they do tend to focus on those very um, big ticket items and heavy industries. And I think that that part of this is um, a well-intentioned and perhaps crucial focus that German history is, uh, has taken up since the Second World War on politics and on the question of how could uh, Nazism happen here. Um, so German history has had a particular bias toward big, serious questions, many of them um, centrally political. And um, when economy enters into that, of course, that's been part of the, the set of questions. But I think German historians in particular have been a little bit hesitant to work on things that seemed 
frivolous or um, superficial somehow. And, uh, and somehow the history of consumption, particularly before the 20th century, um, has seemed that way. There are now some very fine works on the history of consumption in the 20th century, particularly post-1945 um, for, uh, for Germany and Central Europe. But, um, but the 17th through the 19th centuries, I think we have a lot of work to do and a lot of great sources that we still have to mine. Um, since this was a departure from the stuff that, uh, from intellectual history for sure, by studying material culture, um, what have you learned about thinking historically or thinking about uh, history through material culture? Because I was, uh, I, I think it's, it was wonderful how you related ideas and intellectual culture to the material. Um, this was a new departure for you. Um, and what did you learn by doing that? Oh, it's hard to even um, in summarize because uh, I learned so much about the the actual um, life that um, that uh, that people lived. I think that I, I learned that um, social history um, has been too little part of what I have done, um, and there's so much rich material to discover about um, the way in which people interacted with each other, ate their table manners and their, um, their family uh, gatherings, their gift giving, their, um, their uh, aesthetic behavior just in the home, um, all sorts of things that I had never um, investigated for a kind of popular audience as opposed to, to the elite. And I guess I also realized that there, there are certain um, uh, ways into um, to economic history uh, that can be um, can be used by people who are not hardcore economic um, specialists. Um, so that it's not it is somewhat daunting to to try this, but it's not impossible to retrain yourself a little bit, and it's very exciting to do that. I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway that um, that I had was that um, you can teach an old dog new tricks <laughs> at some point and it's very very um, useful to retrain yourself or to attempt a new field even you know at the um, the advanced age of whatever I am which I admit <laughs> to but it um, it really does renew your teaching. Um, and it renews your your um, your uh, interest in history to open it up in ways um, that you hadn't hadn't thought of before, and to take that material culture seriously. One last thing I'll say on that front is that um, I've always said, and it's I think true of this project too, that historians can do certain things that other um, other uh, professions and or um, fields can't do. So we can take seriously bad art. <laughs> we can take seriously the um, the production of, uh, of musical um, instruments or musical scores that didn't go much of anywhere or mm. businesses that failed. Um, we don't have to put beautiful objects on display as museum curators need to do or to, to really give the um, 
the most beautiful objects, the center stage, we can write about insulator tubes and, <laughs> uh, and teeth and floor tiles. And that um, is something that I think uh, is really an opportunity that we have, that we can, um, we can write about um, things that are either failures or, uh, or less than, um, than perfect examples and try to create a world around that and explain um, that more, uh, more humdrum, but also more perhaps um, uh, essential uh, way that we have lived and that we do live. Well, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, um, I never gave two snaps about porcelain probably before. Um, I'm one of those people you mentioned in the introduction about a generation younger than you more or less, since I don't know your age. And I, uh, I'm one of those, I didn't, we didn't ask for porcelain at our wedding when I, my wife and I got married. Um, it never really entered my mind much. Um, and yet when I finished this book, I felt a sense of loss um, because it looks like we're reaching the end of porcelain's history. And um, it felt kind of sad. Um, you have over all those uh, hundreds of pages, you had depicted this, this such a, a rich, um, you used to overuse this word, rich ecosystem. It's like seeing an Amazonian ecosystem that's in danger of, of dying. And I, it, it, it made me feel sad. Did you feel sad when you finished uh, writing the book, uh, in addition to the sort of jubilation of finishing? I did. Um, you know, there were a number of those quotations in the last part of the book that that really felt um felt melancholy to me and I, I tried to end with a with a hopeful perhaps it's not over kind of um philip but uh, it, it is it is an industry that seems uh, hard to imagine reviving now i do believe that that the artistic end of porcelain will certainly survive um Edmund Duvall, who's written about porcelain beautifully, continues to make beautiful artistic porcelain, as do other artists. Um, and I believe that we will continue to have ceramics of various sorts, utilitarian um, as they are. But what is the future, particularly of European porcelain and European porcelain crafts? And maybe this is something we're losing in many other industries too is is just the the craft of uh of making some things um particularly making them not for the most elite of consumers but for us more middle class type people um who wanted and had at some point a little luxury in their lives um Maybe we're we're only interested in a different kind of luxury now, and it, uh, luxury consumption does shift from object to object. So uh, perhaps that craft will go into other kinds of goods. But it's um, it is a bit uh, a bit sobering to see just what has happened to this industry and how threatened it is today. My guest today has been Suzanne El Marchand. She's the author of Porcelain: A History from the Heart of Europe. Sue, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been a great delight. Thank you, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. 
if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.